Hello, world. Welcome to Steinfeld Talks, episode four. It's July 24th, 2020. My guest today is my dad, Bruce Steinfeld, visiting me in Vermont from Florida. How's it going, dad? Good, Michael. I'm very proud to be on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So um, I know you wanted to, um, what's the word? set the record straight on a few things that I had said about you in the first podcast. Yes, so yes. I'll I, let you go ahead and do that. I'd like to restore my good name because Michael said that I live in a 60 and over community and I don't do anything. And that is just absolutely untrue. It's a 55 and over community. And uh, I do quite a bit. I go out to the beach a lot. I do karaoke. I got a girlfriend. Um, and I do a variety of other things that I'm not at liberty to disclose at this time. Do you, would you like to tell everyone um, where you do these things? Where, I do where, where you live? Where I live? Yes. I live in Delray Beach, Florida. Okay. And do you want to describe that to, uh, to the listeners? My future audience might not be very familiar with Florida. Well, okay. Well, the southeast part of Florida has a lot of transplants from the Northeast. So Michael and I are New Jersey guys, so we're very comfortable there. And so you have, you know, you have New Yorkers, New Jersey guys, but in addition, I find the natives to be just wonderful. It's, you know, it's a nice group of people. And uh, if you wanna get away from the Northeast crowd, you just drive up the coast. In fact, my girlfriend and I, I don't even know if Michael knows this, two weeks ago we went to St. Augustine. And so you know, that's, I don't know, three and a half hours up the coast. So it's definitely classic native Florida, but Florida is very laid back. It's much more casual, much more casual environment than I was used to in New Jersey. I have to say the people are a little bit nicer Weather is fantastic, except the summers are a little on the hot side. How about the hurricanes? Well, I haven't really experienced them yet, but I'm concerned about it. Well, I mean, you, I mean, you, you got very lucky in that um, the hurricane last year stayed off the shore. All right, so that's until a, it got to North Carolina. I believe. It's a, no, it's a good point because, to Michael's point, the hurricane was pointed right at us, so I was singing a different tune last year. Now that that's safely tucked in the past, no, no, he's right. When the, the hurricane's heading at you, which, you know, it's a problem, but every region has its issue. I mean, sometimes we talk about the West Coast, all the natural issues they have there. Although I have to say in New Jersey, you don't have that many issues, um, except nobody likes people from New Jersey. That's the only <laughs> issue you have. But other than that, you don't have that many issues. You have bad drivers. You should see the bad drivers in Florida. Well, they're all old. Un it's unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. The drivers in Florida. Woo! Explain. Well, please. you know, my dad said it wisely about six or seven years ago. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But he said, you have the very old and the very young in Florida. So that's a very bad combination of drivers. But I have to say... The old people really take the cake. They're unbelievable. It's, they're driving. It so aligns to stereotypes, you know, the, the switching of lanes and the lack of awareness. Uh, it's just kind of amazing. And uh, 
obviously the slow speed, which, you know, you would expect, but hey, we're all going to be there. So judge not lest ye be judged. Uh, so I want to give you the opportunity uh, if we want to get into COVID now um, to talk a little bit about mm. Florida and COVID and maybe how it's being represented in the media, because I know you have some opinions about that. Well, yeah, my general feeling is that you have a, a um, liberal slanted mainstream media and um, I'm not a big fan, a Trump fan, but I, I do believe their primary object, objective is to destroy him. So I think they will utilize any tactic they can to do that. So I think, I think a lot of people have um, leveraged the coronavirus for uh, their own personal reasons. It's obviously, it's a real problem. It's a serious problem. Um, ironically, I told Michael, I don't see as much evidence of it as you'd think. I walk around, I, you know, we see people in masks, but I don't see any empirical evidence of people that are suffering. Although, you know, to be fair, I look at the statistics and Michael knows I've got a statistical background and, and to be fair, the hospitals are pretty full in Florida, so you can't say that's an accident. Um, but of course, on the other hand, the death rate is low. But uh, I, I have to be honest, for me, it's been very smooth sailing. Very, the whole thing has been very easy, and I've heard a lot of people say quite the opposite. It's not a big deal for me, although it does encroach on activities. I mean you know, all sorts of stuff is closing down, but. Um, I think one of the scariest things about these more recent COVID outbreaks is where they are occurring. Florida, Texas, Arizona, California, all in the summer. So uh, I think when, when this came out, there was a lot of talk about how this thing is gonna go away in the summer. Um, that definitely doesn't seem to be the case. It's, cropping up in very hot places so but I think what may have happened Michael mm -hmm. is that um, this is a very smart virus so I my belief is that it's mutating and I don't have data mm -hmm. on this to relate to your original question but my suspicion is the original strain might have been more sensitive to heat but I've mm -hmm. heard a lot of chatter in the last month or so that it's mutating to uh, a form that is easier to catch, but less deadly. Okay. I don't know how true that is, but that's the flavor that I've heard. I mean, that's definitely possible. There's, there's so many things that we still have no idea about COVID. And it's kind of shocking to believe that about six or seven months, well, I should really say four months, their evidence came out later that COVID was around in the U.S. as early as January. But I want to mainly focus on when the U.S. got started getting hit hard and we, um, and Donald Trump started giving some strong opinions about COVID. Um, it, 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 to me, is really shocking how little information we still have. And I don't know if that speaks to um, our scientists and our government not being able to figure it out if it points to our government knows but they don't want to tell us um 
Well, I want to jump in yeah. on that one. I mean, I, I think there might be some truth to that, but then again, we have this international marketplace of ideas. So even if our government didn't want to tell us, which I wouldn't put it past them, but even if they did have that intention, we could get information from Europe, South America, Asia. Um, yeah, that's so true. I don't understand. We haven't heard anything incrementally from any other place. So it doesn't really bolster that hypothesis. Yeah, that, that is a good point. Um, apparently, and, and I don't want to claim to know much about this, but apparently there is uh, some credence to the idea that, uh, that this is a man-made virus that escaped a laboratory in Wuhan, China, uh, because it apparently behaves very differently than normal viruses do. Um, I don't wanna start making stuff up here, so I would refer you to Brett Weinstein's conversation with Joe Rogan, where he discusses that. Well, did he, does he believe that? Yeah, he strongly believes that, and he is, you know, he's an evolutionary biologist, and uh, oh. I mean, we've discussed his, uh, his role in um, the discovery that laboratory mice have extremely long telomeres. Uh, I mean, he's a, a pretty brilliant person, both him and his brother, Eric. So I think if he says something about evolutionary biology, it's best to take it seriously. So what does he suggest regarding next steps? Um, I, I don't know. I listened to that podcast. I think that podcast is a couple of months old at this point. Um, and I haven't heard him speak to about COVID uh, since then. So. I'd like to hear what he says about okay. how serious he believes it is at this time and how he thinks we should manage it going forward. We can listen, look that up after this podcast. Yeah, but the thing is, I think you said that was five months old, right? Uh, I don't think it was that old. It was maybe two months old, okay. which in COVID time is a long time. Okay. So do you want to uh, tell everyone how you're enjoying your trip here in Vermont? Uh, you know, I always call Michael my best friend. I've been calling him my best friend since he slid into home and the doctor said he was safe. So I just... Um, having the greatest time being with him. Just love being with him. Uh, I wish I could say the same for him relative to me, but uh, no, I think he likes being with me. But I obviously- My dad has a way of pushing my buttons. But and he can't seem to stop. He never pushes my buttons. I never get, I never get upset from him. That's the irony of it. I just, the last time I was upset at Michael, he was six and he was helping me plant something and he, doing a very bad job. And I said, what's your problem? And he said, what's your problem? I was mad at him for about 15 seconds, but then I got over it. Uh, so I actually want to use that to segue <clears throat> into um, something related to what happened today. So earlier today, uh, my dad and I were at Oak Ledge Park, we went to the beach at Lake Champlain, had a very nice time. And um, <laughs> My, my dad was really annoying me uh, at this point. And I think I said something snarky to him. And he has starts, he starts picking up this conversation with this maybe 40-year-old dad uh, right by us saying that, and my dad said, 
when I was a kid, I got yelled at. I grew up, I had kids, but now you can't yell at the kids. The kids yell at you. That's right. Uh, I've been yelled at my whole life. My parents were professional. Do you think there's something specific about your generation that, uh, I mean, this is a huge question. Of course, and if you don't know that, it just shows how entitled you are. The kids today are so entitled compared there was a well, I asked point. what it meant about your generation, not mine. I'm, well, we can get to my generation. I just I want to start there. I'll, I'll answer the questions okay. in my own way. Okay. Thank you. I know a little bit about interviewing. All right. So, <clears throat> what I would say is that I think there was a inflection point between my generation and Michael's generation, where the child was in the last vestiges of being the enemy. In my generation, children should be. Um, seen but not heard and there wasn't all that much respect according to children but then somehow when i grew up the um tipping point moved where we realized that our children are our greatest assets and our greatest gifts so as i taught michael since he's a kid like anything the pendulum overswung so now we were so we're so overly cautious and loving and protective about our kids and the contrast between how we were brought up in this is absolutely hilarious. So I was screamed at by my parents constantly and I'm still screamed at by Michael and his brother, but I don't care. So are you the first generation of parents to get yelled at by their children? Do you I think? think so. Yeah. I no. I think. Well, let's <laughs> let's put it this way. It's the a unluckiest good point. generation. To put it, you know, it's a very good insight. I think my generation was pretty abusive to their parents, but we didn't yell at our parents that much. But when we did, we were pretty abusive what do you because mean by abusive? the reason was because that was a very revolutionary time. I grew up during the. I was a child in the '60s and then a teenager in the '70s. So it was a very classic time of discussing the generation gap between parents and kids. This was the time after the Vietnam War and young people started developing a lot of distrust of older people. So there was a lot of hostility between the different age brackets. And the other thing is that from my vantage point, parents were so much older when I was a kid. And they are now. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's the, the I think gap the between just the opposite. No, I don't mean physically. I mean emotionally. Okay. I mean emotionally. I mean there was such a gap between parents and kids that was almost almost laughable. The in your, lack, this is in your generation? In my generation, child? the lack of credibility parents had with kids and the inability of parents and kids to discuss anything meaningful socially or emotionally. It was just amazing. And um, I believe I can discuss anything with my kids. But of course, as you've noticed, my perception of how things go with Michael is much better than his perception of how things go. But I, I think we have a, a grand old time. And I think he does down deep. What do you think the change was? that caused this generation I think it's an evolution, so an evolution of psychology and self-awareness. I think that 
there's been leaps and bounds in psychology and you know over the last 30 years we've really got a handle on how crucial it is in terms of parenting children physically and emotionally and how accountable as parents we are to their development and I think there was a level of obliviousness with regard to my parents and psychology they just didn't have the awareness I mean my parents knew nothing about psychology or emotional IQ and based on the work I did and and what I've studied that's something that's very important to me and uh, I just think a lot of people my age are much more aware of the implications of that and as such they treat the kids with much more respect far far more respect than we were treated and it, it's kind of funny and when you speak to an older person and your kid overhears it he can't believe it and I I threatened Michael today if you recall Michael I threatened to put you in a time machine well, you didn't go ahead may I, may yeah. I speak yes. yes I threatened to put Michael in a time machine and send him to my childhood home of 416 White Oak Ridge Road in 1971 he could be you don't want to tell them where be in Milburn New Jersey he could just so you could go visit the house just, no I wanted you to be there so you could spend um, a week as a as a child yes with my parents I know, okay and and I'd like Jason to be there too <laughs> just just so that you could take it all in and digest it and, and perceive what it was like uh, just to, to be fair, that was not the first time you threatened to put us in a time machine. That was maybe the thousandth time you threatened uh, to put us in a time machine. If I could develop a time machine, that's the that's, first that's thing. That's the first thing first you would thing do. First thing I would do is send my kids back to my household <laughs> when I was about the age of 14. The chaos. What if it was the only thing you could do with the time machine? Would you still do it? No. Or would you kill Hitler? That's a good one. You know, that's, that's a really good one, Mick. Would I kill Hitler or would I try to make a killing in the stock market based <laughs> on my knowledge of when the market crashed? That's a good one. This is like a Twilight Zone mm -hmm. show. And this is another, you know, Michael and I have been watching the Twilight Zone since he was knee high to a grasshopper. He's seen almost every single Twilight well, Zone. I don't think so, that's true even. I, there's just so many of them. I'm not saying, this, I don't mean you've seen all of them, but I've seen, you've seen a hell I've, of a lot I've of them. I've seen a lot of them. And uh, Great show. You know, yeah, I, I watched TV with my dad when I was a kid, but not like that. I mean, if he was watching the Giants, I would watch, but I wouldn't, for example, watch a Twilight Zone episode with my dad and discuss it. You know, Michael and I have had millions of books and movie discussions. We've done it so many times, and we are big fans of the Twilight Zone in terms of the irony and the you know, prediction of the future in fact one of the things i'm going to take a step sideways if it's i just okay. i want to interject one very quick thing um for my listeners so you are my dad is very hyperbolic so when he says millions he does not actually mean millions um i just want you to get that out there because it'll probably come up again go ahead what context did i use it what did i say millions of books and movies and shows well that's how i was that's that is how it's brought up. Okay. I mean, that's a good point. I shouldn't say that, but that's that was standard fare when I grew up. You'd say millions, but of course, yes, that's true. Thank you for correcting me, Michael. We have not okay. seen 
I'm we have not observed. You, you can go back to your point you were making? No, no, I, I want to okay. finish this point. All right, go ahead. Well, you're right. We have not reviewed millions of books and movies, and I'm glad you corrected that. But, um, yeah, you know, I had a really good point that I thought you were going to get a kick out of. Oh, yeah, and I just, I just remembered it the second while I was stalling for time. So one of the books that we both read is 1984. And we've discussed that. And I know this is one of the agendas Michael wants to get to today, how um, I am a believer that Michael, 1984 was very prescient about explaining what could happen in a supposedly well-meaning but totalitarian government where all of uh, human freedom and liberty is sacrificed and held with the government. And I think that what we're seeing now in this cancel culture and this um, unbelievable level of political correctness, I think we're seeing a level of censorship. And to me, that's pretty dangerous uh, because we really what is this great American experiment founded on, if not freedom of speech? Well, yeah, that's a great point. Um, I myself am typically anti-censorship. Um, I believe things should be expressed as they should, because anyone who's interested in that topic is going to find it anyway. I mean, nothing annoys me more than listening to a great song on the radio and the station ruins it by taking out the swear words. Kids are going to look that up, that song up and they'll figure it out. So I think maybe one good part of cancel culture is it reflects on what society currently is and asks the question, is that how it should be? Uh, I mean, so one thing I have a decently strong opinion on, is Christopher Columbus. And I mean, we were taught in school that he was a hero that came and discovered America. And now we know he was a, he never set foot in America and he slaughtered indigenous people and took slaves and took bull. Uh, you know, that was par for the course at the time. So I'm not. Okay, even, so let me just jump in for a second. That's, okay. that's a very important contextual point. He was, he was commissioned by the king and queen of Spain to take this voyage. And you have to understand that back in the day, every country in history had slaves and, and all the major countries sought to colonialize, to colonize, excuse mm -hmm. me. And uh, if you fast forward to our framers of the Constitution, most of them had slaves. And that's now, where I wanted to go next. Go ahead. Now, I, I will admit, you know, I'm a very big fan of George Washington. And he had slaves near, till near the end of his life. And I hate to say it, but for, I believe, for public relations purposes, he let his slaves go. But uh, if you ever get a chance to watch the TV movie, The Crossing, is a fantastic illustration. It starts with the, well, I won't get into the details, but 
one of the key points of the movie is Washington crossing the Delaware. It's the name and of the movie. The crossing. And it reviews that crossing of the Delaware, which is the famous painting that all kids have seen. But I know for me, and I was a recently smart kid, I didn't really understand much before it and after it. It gives a really good thumbnail sketch of the engagements, the beginning to the middle of the Revolutionary War, a fantastic movie. But getting back to that, you know, even in the Constitution, uh, the concept that all men were created equal, it's very sad that it was not literally applied to black men at the time. But again, and I always tell Michael about this, you gotta be very contextual. This is the way things were. I mean, you gotta be very, very careful. And there's a great word or phrase for it. I forget what it is, but judging the past by today's um, mores, I think it's a very dangerous and um, naive thing mm -hmm. to do. So it not, was what it was back then. I'm just finishing up. Was what it was back then, and um, I do take the point that we have to be very careful about what we celebrate. But at the same time, you know that was history, and even our founding fathers, as fabulous as they were, they were imperfect, and they were evolving. And that's really the whole story of of history. I mean, you think about. The stuff that was done in the Roman times is just unbelievable how barbaric they were, but that's how it was done. So to bring it back to Columbus, who I, I think is a more black and white case, um, and then maybe we can get to the Founding Fathers. A, I don't think there's any reason that Christopher that we should have Christopher Columbus statues in this country. Um, B, the whole idea of Columbus Day was very much pushed by Italian American populations because they were a marginalized population in this country for a long time and used it to kind of Americanize themselves. Um, but my point is just because, I mean, we can acknowledge people's shortcomings and, um, and still celebrate them, but we shouldn't admire and celebrate people just because they were admired and celebrated in the past. I think we should be looking critical, critically at what are the monuments we put up are and think, is this someone that we want to display to the world as someone that is one of our heroes? Christopher Columbus, I believe, is definitely not. Now, do we want to talk about people like George Washington? Can I respond to that? Yeah. So I think you get into a slippery slope. You know, as usual, my son is brilliant and superbly articulate and so proud of the way he presents himself. And he makes a very good argument. Um, he's wrong, but no, I, I'm kidding around. You know, a lot of what he said holds water. There's no question about it. But at the same time, at the same time, that is our history just as the Confederate flag is part of our history and Confederate soldiers are part of our history. Now, yes, you've got to be very important how you look back at it. And I think that these things can be framed accordingly. Now, I take issue with Michael's 
point about the non-discovery from Columbus because he, I'm not sure he was the first because I think the Vikings were the first, but he did make it to the Bahamas. So, you know, the argument yeah. is that big picture, he discovered North America. He brought and the he, new world back to the attention of Europe. Well, I will give him credit for that. Yeah, that's, that's I think, sort of, I, I don't know. I'm not. That's sort of what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm driving at. Now, did, you got to understand, he was commissioned by the king and queen of Spain. He was a nobody. I, he's not even Spanish. He's Italian. My understanding is, you know, he wanted to do exploration and, you know, he went knocking on doors and I have no doubt he tried the Italians first. They said, move it along. So then he went to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella and he sold them on this idea that we could potentially, well, my understanding was it was, he was looking for a route, which is fascinating. Yeah, he Michael screwed up. Michael and I were talking about this today. This is this is really fascinating. Okay. We tangentially were talking about it. We talked about the Suez Canal. He was looking, believe it or not, he was looking for a route to the East Indies, which my understanding is what that literally is. is let's let's call it the East Coast of India. All right. So, at the time, if you think about this, and I'm. I'm digressing a little, but this is such a monstrously important point in history. Um, the way that they, everything was done by water. You know, there was not that much land travel back in the day because we weren't too good with roads. We weren't uh, too good with railroads, as you can know. So what we were very good with was water travel. So if you think about it, if you were embarking from Europe and you wanted to go to India. I think most people know this. All right, well, I'll make it fast. The only, way you, the only way you could do it back in the day, you had to go all the way south and go under, go below the tip of Africa, and it was terrible. Um, the weather was horrible there. You lost a lot of ships, and it was a lot of extra mileage, and then you'd have to cut back up to India. So, I mean, think about it. Columbus is amazing based on his belief, which I'm sure he wasn't even positive of. But his belief that the world was round, he deduced, well, I'll go west. And obviously, with the ethnocentrist perspective, they thought that Europe and, and Asia were the majority of the world. So I'm assuming that they believed, well, you know, you got some water west, but maybe if you just keep going west. I think people did world. actually know that the world was round. Well, I, maybe that information had been forgotten. But. but anyway, there was, if you went west, it was a complete frontier. So I'm deducing from this that they hypothesized that if you go west of the Atlantic, you're going to go around the corner and you can hit India from the other side. Because, of, of course, at the time, they didn't even know the existence of North America and South America. So that's what Michael said. It was a giant mistake. But if you think about the amazing courage that it took for this guy to do this yeah, false i mean it's unbelievable isn't it amazing though how someone who literally got here by mistake out of his own ignorance and we're still studying him and you know we're talking about him today in the year 2010 well, i don't think it's i don't okay. disagree with you and i usually agree with most of those types of statements you make but a lot of things in the world come out by trying new things. 
setting your sails and see where the wind takes you. And back in the day, they didn't know that much. So they had to do a heck of a lot more exploration along many more lines than we did because they just didn't have the foundation of knowledge. So I have um, tremendous admiration for those guys. And obviously, as they did those explorations, Galileo and Socrates, Columbus, you know, we, Copernicus, we, we found out the things that we know to be true today. So much of it was by accident, right? But we don't have statues of any of those people. Well, we should. I mean, you know, I've seen, I think there's been statues of Socrates. I think I've seen that. Okay, Socrates Museum. Should be a statue of Galileo, and I, I throw one in. I was referring Curtis. to America, but like yeah, now in. those are non-Americans. I throw in some for Thomas Edison. I don't think anybody would have too much of a problem with that. Apparently, he stole most of the, his ideas from Nikola Tesla. I'm I'm not sure how true that is. That's well, no, I think there's some. I like to think of it that he borrowed the concepts okay. and, and leveraged them. I don't know if he, but I I do. From I read something similar to that too that the a lot of the inspiration relative to the electric current was from Tesla. But to be fair, I mean, he built on it. I, I don't think Tesla was anywhere near creating the light bulb per se. You got to hand it to Edison. I mean, that is un another one. Unbelievable. I don't know what year it was. Do you know, Michael? That he invented the light bulb? I really, should we it, take it a would crazy be a wild guess? guess. Yeah, I'm going to say... Let's have the guts to take the wild guess. Well, you'd, you'd think it would be pre-Industrial Revolution, right? No question about so that. So 1850s, maybe? I'm thinking I was going to say something stupid like 1910. <laughs> I was going to say a little after Lincoln. That would be my guess. Maybe so 1870s? 1880, maybe, something in that neck of the woods. So what did I say, 1850s? I'm going to say between Lincoln and 1900s. I, that's when I believe it happened, the late 1800s. But anyway, I mean... He went from fire to a light bulb. It's unbelievable. Okay, so Michael is using I'm gonna, this. Yeah, I'm going to look this up real quick. Uh, do we want to make it make it back to cancel culture and talk a, a little more about that? Because we, we were going to talk about whatever you Well, we, we really only touched that briefly, and then we managed to make it all the way to Thomas well, Edison. Well, while you're doing that, so I'll espouse on that a little further, that I, I don't like the idea of the concept of 1984 Newspeak, where in the book 1984 everything was couched in a new and different way that favored the government and in effect acted as censorship and anything that is actual or um covert censorship i have a real problem with because i think that is could i actually stop you for a sec because um i'm gonna need you to repeat all that because i was reading on um edison uh 1879 in Menlo Park, New Jersey. Well, I think my first guess was 1880, so I apologize okay. if I was off. I don't think you said those words. I think that's what I said. Anyway, go, go, no, go back no, to No, I think you said the 1900s, Mick. Well, I said I was going to say something stupid like 1908 until I really thought about it. I think I said 1850s. You did. Okay, you did. so 18, so I was, I was, I was early. Anyway. So now this is an example where I bust his chops. He gets, he gets sensitive. It's just a joke. I'm busting chops. Okay. I don't care. All right. One day he'll learn. But I don't. I don't get upset with him for some reason. He gets upset okay. with me. I can't understand why. All right. So now, now we can try culture. to make it back to cancel right. culture. Right. So I, I think. 
look what it boils down to. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Political correctness, when this first started coming out in the, uh, I guess, 80s and 90s, it seemed like a good idea. I really embraced it. But then, as I tell Michael and his brother all the time, this, the slippery slope came into play and the noose tightened and the noose tightened. And where does it stop? I mean, you know, my last couple of years working at Merck, it was the political correctness of the environment was just unbelievable. Um, you know, it, you just couldn't have any fun. And I remember playing golf with a guy. I didn't even know him. I just paired up with the guy and he was talking to his friend and they were talking about joking at work. And the way he said it was, dude, it's just not worth it. And I just the way he said that to me was so comical and really just hit the point because you were just so vulnerable. And that is a form of cancel culture. That is a form of um, controlling what you say. Now, I, I do think what you have to, we all know we have to have civility and try to have sensitivity to other others people's feelings. But you know, I heard somebody say this the other day. I don't know if you were listening to this or not. Maybe you weren't. I might have been just browsing on my phone. A comedian said an incredibly insightful thing. He said, you know, one of the problems with cancel culture and political correctness is it does censor the bad guys from saying stupid and outrageous yeah. things. So you don't know who was the bad guy because they're not saying things they would otherwise say. He was very funny, but he said, I'd like to know what the guy thinks because A, it might be enlightening, and at least I know what spots the leopard has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, we can't really know people's genuine selves if they're constantly hiding it. And then just, you know, one other thing, the what I feel strongly about this, and I think Michael feels that I get too strategic or philosophical about this. I think when you go into cancel culture and you go into um, censorship related to political correctness, what that does in effect is it takes away some of your personal liberties. And the more you engage in that, the more you erode personal liberties. And I'm a very big believer in personal liberties. I think that's what made this country really special. Yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely on the same page about that. Um, I think, and I'm going to go the other, ex go to the other extreme here. Um, so that's what we're going to do, I guess. It people had a personal liberty to uh, exclude black people from their restaurants and stores and parks in the South up until the 1960s. People today have a personal liberty to deny service to people based on religious beliefs. Are those two the same thing? I don't think they're the same thing. Um, but I just, I want to, so right, I'm, I just, I just I'm want gonna, to finish this point. I'll weigh in on that. I just want to finish this point. Just, you know, it, like everything else, it's a spectrum. We don't want people excluding other people from society because they somehow value that person less, but we don't want to go around censoring everyone. So, I mean, I think we agree there has to be some level of 
political correctness, I think you would argue we're too far on the extreme of that spectrum. I think you said it perfectly. It's a question, Michael and I talk about this all the time in other walks of life, everything's a continuum. So we have laws put in place, and we put a stake in the ground at where we felt was a reasonable point in the continuum relative to discrimination so that laws would curb that type of behavior, but still some of that behavior filters in. So then the question becomes, do you make the laws even more rigorous and more rigorous? And then we get into my argument is you gotta be careful with that. Sounds like a great idea on paper, but you can get into the slippery slope by taking it. You, you turn the valve just one more turn and after about eight or nine turns, everything has changed. And now you're at a point where we talked about in um, 1984, where you have new speak and there are certain words that are outlawed and everything's turned on its ears. So, you know, my brother Stephen puts it perfectly. There, what, what does he say? There's a, there's a limit. There's a limit. Right. That's, thank you, Michael. That's what he says. He says there's a limit. And when he, he, I'll tell you where he first said it to me. Michael loved it because it's so embarrassing to me. Uh, it's not that embarrassing, but it is kind of, kind of. So we were playing golf once, and uh, I forgot my sunblock. So it was in Florida. Man, these summers are unbelievable. So I'm slathering on his sunblock. So he's looking at me in disbelief because I'm slathering on the sunblock. And uh, he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm borrowing your sunblock. He goes, well, there's a limit. And then the light bulb went off. He's right. There is a limit. And that's when I first, this has got to be 10 years ago. That's when I first really understood that. So here I was the victim of here's a limit. And I was, I was violating that limit. You know, the old saying, well, if a little sunblock, sunblock's good, more is better, but not really. There's a limit. That to me, and I explained to Michael's brother about moderation, that there is so unbelievably important for life in general and to teach kids is a limit. You know, it sounds like a little is good, more is better, but not really. There's a limit. Well, I think it's very hard for people to see something as bad when it generally aligns with their values. So I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Oh, well, yeah, I think most all reasonable people agree racism is bad. Uh, our founding fathers were racist. They owned slaves of a different race. I think that has to be by definition racist. So, so here's where you get in trouble. Well, uh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. We have such a screwed up, demented, taboo society so that we've gone down the slippery slope yes. with racism. I'm just, I'm trying to point out uh, you were right. One of these oxymorons where we want to be anti-racist. It was a good example, yeah. and it was it was a very good example of your point, and it was a good example of my point, because now we're so hypersensitive to racism that I just read a, an excerpt, an article about a professor who was calling out a racist incident, and he said the N word, and he got fired for saying the N word in terms of calling out the racist incident. I mean, we're so hypersensitive that in addition to that, it's taboo. I mean, every once in a while, I'll speak to a black person about racial issues 
and I'll say in the back of my mind, this is unbelievable, it's almost never done. And I'll ask him once in a while. I'll say, does anybody ever talk to you about this? Says, no, no, we never talk to a white person about any of these things. We, we have a taboo society where every, the white people are so afraid of being racist that they won't even talk about it. So I don't know how we're gonna possibly solve it if we don't talk about it. Yeah. Um. I mean, my generation has done a disgraceful job with that. We've made a lot of progress, but still, I have to say, pretty bad. So I'm handing the baton off to your generation, which is a concern because your generation is 10 times more politically correct and more woke than my generation. So you have all sorts of barriers and obstacles in terms of developing true and genuine discussions. Um, <laughs> so I'm having some trouble picking up off of that. So I, I think there's a few well, things that, that? what well, I think it's true for the most part. I think there's a few things that could contribute in both directions. Um, I think with the advent of social media and the internet more generally, people are um, are just generally kind of guided into grouping in with other people that think like them. So when you're surrounded by people that think like you, you become more, you all collectively become more extreme in those beliefs. Um, that's one. Two, uh, I think bad things are just more likely to be brought up to public awareness. And when everyone's, so everyone's dirty laundry is getting aired out. And this relates directly back to the internet because that's how most of that information is spread. Uh, so, you know, when side- There's a, there's a different piece well, to that. I, I, just, I just want to finish up. When side A sees side B sh B's shit and side B sees side A's, A's shit, they're both be going to become more enraged with each other. There's a terrible irony with that, is that unfortunately in the internet, the world of Twitter, people hide behind the cloak of anonymity. So the people that are most likely to say the outrageous things to other people are those people that can't even be identified. Those are the people that are, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, those people that are most likely to cross that line on the internet are those very people that can't be identified in the first place, which is yeah. very sad. So I, I think we're talking about a couple different things here. That's why I wanted to bring up this distinction. So that's an issue that's not really a function of the internet per se, it's more of a function of the quality of the internet that you can be anonymous. And yeah. you know how people are. Yeah. When, which is part of the internet. When they're cloaked in anonymity. Yeah. So that, I think, is a real problem. Um, and it's really sad. And then the other piece that Michael said, I mean, there's a term for that that's called groupthink, um, where you're in a group and everybody has these swirling hypotheses that all go in the same direction. And they come out of the meeting and they all look at each other and go, well, we're in alignment. <laughs> And they could be wrong. I mean, there's been cases in history where people were, well, what was the one, one of the Middle East wars, I, I believe the Secretary of State at the time, it was Cheney, if I'm not mistaken, said, when we come there as liberators, they're gonna be throwing roses. Is that Iraq? In yeah. 2000, 
to whatever it was. was the vice president. They, they did not throw roses. Believe me, it didn't go that well. But, uh, you know, he had such confidence about it. And obviously that was the administration's perspective. So I, you know, Michael and I talked about artificial intelligence and we know that is the foundation of the internet. So we know artificial intelligence uh, propagates group things. So yes, it's a problem. You gotta be careful about that. That's why I always urge Michael and his brother to constantly look at all different sources and, and welcome different sources, because I, I think there's nothing more frustrating than somebody who's so engulfed in their point of view that they become dogmatic. Well, to me, that's very sad. Yeah. I think anytime you become divorced from the facts, you're, uh, you're in trouble. Well, you know, I, I tell Michael, another one of my heroes is uh, Churchill. What was the great, great quote he had about a fanatic? I don't remember. I think he said something to the effect of a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change yes, his subject. That sounds right. That's kind of a brilliant, it's kind of a brilliant statement. And, you know, we do get people like that. And unfortunately with groupthink that creates that, which is, listen, I mean, I want to be very clear. I, I've told Michael that so many things that um, have happened in the last years are for the better. I mean, the fact that we are introducing diversity is fabulous because when you introduce diversity, you improve the melting pot quality of America, but you also increase diversity of thought. So that is something that generally counters groupthink. So there's a lot of great stuff that's going on. It's just that, you know, we have this terrible mixed bag in this country. And as I said, and I really do believe it, so many things are taboo. You'd think it was like, the 1850s, where we can't talk about certain things, so I don't know how we're going to resolve them. Yeah. Um, so to this point, we've talked about COVID. We've talked about um, how your generation is the first one to get yelled at by their kids. Uh, by their parents and their kids. By their parents and their kids. Um, talked about a lot of history, kind of unintentionally, and uh, cancel culture. Um, you want to lighten things up a little bit? And well, there's one last thing that yeah. I know you would be remiss if okay. we covered. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, we, we should definitely get to that. What was that um, one? All right, we should put the protest. Yes. I, I, I think it might be nice to I know put that, that was very important. aside so I, for I'll leave just a little you. bit. Yeah. And, um, Fine. We're going to get into something lighter now? I, I'd like to. Would you like me to? Well, I want something? to know if you had something on your mind. A little lighter. You know what just went through my mind? What? I always wanted to expose Michael to all different points of view and thoughts. So when he was about, I, know, I think he was 14 and a half or 15, I took him to the movie Borat. So he's like the youngest guy in the theater. And I said, Michael, I know this is a wacky, crazy movie, and it's actually an embedded satire, which he didn't understand at the time. But... Uh, yeah, I'd like to get your opinion on some of the things that I've exposed you to um, that have been um, maybe earlier than some people might have. Or, um, if it, or if that's just my imagination. I don't think my dad exposed me to anything too early. Um, 
like I said, um, in today's world with the internet, children are going to find out about things. And when I was a kid, smartphones didn't exist. So you had to um, go onto the computer, which occasionally led to problems that I'm not going to share here. Um, problems with Jason. Well, Jason Especially. too. Well, we, we discussed at for he a while. Was amazing <laughs> on the computer. The stuff that he saw, uh, he saw stuff on the computer that I didn't see till. <laughs> well, we, we Jason and I talked about this last time. I mean, when you have an older brother, that's what happens. He was exposed to South Park at the age of five, and that show was filthy back then. I, I don't know what it's like now because I've kind of been out of it for a while. But they just they did the most ridiculous shit. <laughs> that a five-year-old should have never seen, and he saw all of it. <laughs> yeah, and he's when God made Jason, he broke the mold. So you know, you wonder if he's a product of all of those things. I'm sure he is. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there was anything um, you exposed me to too young. Uh, I, think I remember with a number of things, like sort of dangerous things like, um, you know, tools and stuff. I always said to you, I want you to learn it from me. I think that, you know, we shared some alcohol early. I felt that if you learned it from me, if you remember when you had that girlfriend in high school, I, I made the bedroom okay. in my house available okay. to you. Thanks, Dad. You're welcome. So... I felt as long as Michael learned about it from me, he got the right perspective. I'd rather him learn it that way than, I mean, obviously, again, the hilarious irony. I learned nothing from my parents relative to any of these sensitive subjects. They weren't discussed, all right? So you stumbled through life, you learned them from your friends. If you had a bad experience, well, okay, that's you know, a couple of years off your life that you're going to have to get over. Um, it just, I, I just wanted to um, try to present the world to him in such a way that he could experience it, but in sort of a safe and reasonable way, because there's a lot of dangerous stuff out there that you don't want kids going half cocked on. They go down one way roads, they can't get back. You know, especially drugs, a great example. Drugs, alcohol. Right? Yeah. You know, it's the thing kids don't understand. You get into an emotional and physical addiction. Very hard to get out of that. Mm -hmm. they, what does a 14-year-old kid know about that? Yeah. Um, I think this is actually a point that I, I meant to bring up at some point earlier, but it's actually kind of come up uh, organically here. Um, <clears throat> I think, and this relates to the value of history, um, this kind of was, I thought of this when we were talking about cancel culture, though really kind of relates to everything. We're not going to know if we're going too far until we've realized that we've gone too far. And I think the younger you are, the easier it is to do that because you just have generally less experience. So could you give an example? I'm yeah. A I, I mean, a, what you're getting at. a 14 year old, a 14 year old getting involved with alcohol probably isn't going to realize that he is drinking too much alcohol until it's a problem. I thought you were 
I thought you brought up, made a reference to cancel culture. I, I had thought of that when we were talking about cancel culture, but because I was, I was saying to myself, you were talking about it in the context of cancel culture. Uh, do you, do you want an example in the context of cancel culture? That's what I thought you were talking okay, well, about. Well, that's, I mean, so. You should try to gracefully get yourself well, self out and say, I was just about to give you an example. So I am ju- I was just about to give you an example of this in cancel culture before I was rudely interrupted Go by ahead. my father. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I don't like is we are starting to censor TV shows. Um, this um, l- Let me give maybe a more pertinent example. And I guess I'll go to um, maybe firing people for saying things that maybe they shouldn't have said. You know, we're not going to know that we've made a big mistake until no one can hold down a job any longer because of the political correctness. So I, I'm not sure if that's a great the best example. example. It is a good example because every time somebody runs for president, they go back farther and farther into his teenage and childhood years. Mm-hmm and identify he, something he did that might be considered inappropriate by today's standards, and they say, well, maybe he should be disqualified. So obviously the perspective there is who's gonna wanna run for, who, who has, that has had a reasonably normal life is gonna wanna run for office? Uh, no one. <laughs> Except Trump, of yeah. course. Trump is like the the um, exception to the rule. I mean, it's amazing what he's done and, you know, the Teflon nature of it. Um, So there's actually a few directions I could see us going here. Um, I want to run them by you. We could talk about Trump, which I I actually am happy that in the current three episodes of the podcast, we haven't talked too much about Trump. But as you know, he's giving us more and more stuff every day so we can talk more about him. Uh, we can talk a bit about Joe Biden because the topic of Joe Biden actually has not come up on this podcast yet. And I think he will warrant some discussion seeing as he's projected to be the uh, next president of the United States. Um, we could go into what we had alluded to discussing earlier. What do you think? What do you want to talk about? All right, let's talk about Joe Biden. Um, it, uh, yeah, he's a concerning individual to run for office. I, I don't think he's cognitively there. Um, I actually have liked some of his ideas for a jobs program for um, raising money for renewable energy. Uh, those are all things I think we should be doing, um, even though classically he's kind of been a very moderate Democrat, but, you know, I think we, we have to be concerned about some of the shit this guy says. He's not all there. I don't want to say anything rude, um, but, I mean, he's, I've seen enough. I know I've seen enough because whenever he comes on, I'm not interested, and I hear a little voice in my head saying, I've seen enough, so, you know, Maybe that acuity was there at one time, but I don't believe it, it's there now, which suggests to me that if he wins, he'll be a figurehead, which I think is very dangerous. And I've t- told Michael that um, 
it appears with the Democratic Party moving to the left, that he would be a figurehead for a very strong leftist force. I don't know that for a fact. You know, one thing Michael knows is I'm constantly hypothesizing, but that is, that's what my hypothesis would be, that it's a strategic alliance and that um, he's not going to be running things. I mean, that's more or less fine with me, I guess. Um, I would say I, I am disappointed that Bernie Sanders didn't get the nomination. And then if not Bernie Sanders, um, I'm blanking on her name, the Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard seemed uh, like a really fit candidate. Uh, but this is what America has chosen. And he kind of seems like a repeat of Hillary Clinton. Although I will say the policies he's putting forth do seem like he's trying to cater to a progressive audience. Um, and he will likely need that audience to win the election. You know, my, my feeling, you know, my, Michael knows I've got a deep marketing background. And one of the things they say in marketing is, try to be very differentiated, try not to be all things to all people. And unfortunately, I think what we've seen in this political climate is we've seen the left move to the left and the right move to the right. And as Michael knows, I'm a centrist. I try to look at both sides and I don't see any room for a moderate person in the current environment. I just think it's unbelievable what it's come to. Should we uh, use that to segue into the riots? Sure. The protests? Sure, Mick. All right, well, I'm gonna open it up to you since <clears throat> you've uh, brought this topic up to me on several occasions. You seem to be pretty opinionated on it. Right, so I think what Michael's getting at is, I don't think that these riots are an accident. You know, when I was Michael's age, I believed in accidents, and then I, I heard really smart guys in movies saying, I don't believe in coincidences. And I started thinking about that as I got older. And after reading numerous mafia books um, where they illustrate how these terrible accidents befell individuals, but as we know, they were accidentally on purpose, of course. Um, I just think that a lot of times, and I've told this Mike, to Michael numerous times, people couch their true agenda because their agenda is rather severe. So they want to make it more palatable. So for example, the far left, I think presents the agenda in a more palatable way, but I think if they had um, more power, then it would be a slippery slope. I mean, if you look at, the squad and one of those people, some of those people advocate for it's beyond who are you referring to AOC's okay. folks. It's constantly free everything. I don't know how they possibly would think that you could economically justify free everything and uh, what that would do to the currency. I mean, we're printing money like crazy now and I've, 
told Michael that this printing money thing usually ends bad. I mean, there's been numerous cases in history where it's ended badly. Now, the articles I've read that, you know, we've got a better handle on how to do it now, supposedly. But, I mean, you know, it just seems to me that the left would just, if they got in power, they just wildly print money and it would be akin to candy store. And I think it would, it could lead to the destruction of the currency. But the, the key point that Michael was referencing is that I don't believe in coincidences. So suddenly we have these riots all over the place and political unrest all over the place and violence all over the place. You know, it's in all of these different but classic inner city environments. I don't think it's an accident. I think it's probably loosely coordinated somehow by a um, leftist perspective that wants to tear down the fabric of what we've created here in this country. I think we have a great country. I think we have a lot of things we need to fix, but I, I don't think we need to tear it down. And when I was driving it before, I believe the true hidden agenda of the left is to tear it all down. That's what I believe. Now, I will say to Michael, that's my hypothesis. I don't have enough evidence right now, but um, I've been, based on my vocation and avocation, I've been doing those type of um, assessments for a long time, and that's where I see things going. Well, uh, I, I'm just going to state uh, from the on outset that uh, I don't agree with that perspective. Uh, I mostly think that the violent rioters are acting in isolation and are um, using the protests that came from the George Floyd murder and kind of um, and using that to vault their own protests and own revolutions. So I, I think, I, I think you're being blinded to the fact that this is a socialist movement. I mean, the founders of Black Lives Matter have admitted they're devout Marxists. Marx, they embrace Marxist teachings, so that's the more severe version of socialism. They're way beyond democratic socialism. If you look in the writings, it's available on the internet that they embrace Marxism. And I think a lot of what you see relative to the leftist uh, protesters, there's a linkage to a movement towards Marxism and an overthrow of our current free market environment. Um, I don't have that much enough evidence right now to prove it. Wouldn't matter anyway. I always tell Michael, my opinion in two bucks will get you a cup of coffee. It's up to Michael and his generation um, to make changes, not up to me, but I, I am, I am, well, I'm listening. I'm suspicious of nature. I've told Michael a million times since he's a kid, I've seen such unbelievable things. And I was the most, I was the most trusting person. When I was his age, I was much more trusting than he is. And I was much more idealistic. And my dad told me all the cynical stuff about um, the white collar workplace. I thought he was crazy. And it turned out everything he told me came to fruition. Every cynical thing he ever warned me about relative to human nature in the workplace, I've seen evidence of many times at my own expense. So I'm, 
of a suspicious nature. I've seen a lot of bad stuff in my day. You know, that's a classic case between young people tend to generally be liberal. I was liberal when I was younger. And then older people that have had chunks taken out of their hide and they've seen what true human nature is really like, they tend to be more conservative because the young people have this idealistic perspective that things are going to change, but because they're young, you know, the joke, I love young people. Michael knows I'm always talking to young people, but the joke I make to Michael, nobody knows more than a young person. Just ask him. I'll tell you because they don't have that much experience. They think they know so much. And so they think they're going to be the first generation that's going to ideologically change everything. And, you know, I was on the tail end of the hippie generation. They were sure they were going to change it. And this has happened many times before. So I just, I just, you know, would caution young people you have to be very careful. You don't know what you don't know. And it, it, it is important to be, to have an ideology and to try to do the right thing for the future. But, you know, Michael knows I'm so big on quotes. One of my other famous quotes is you have to know your history because those that don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. So you, if you're going to be a blind ideologue, you could go down a very dark alley. Yeah, uh, that's um, that's definitely all true. I we the the thing that makes this conversation uh, somewhat difficult and somewhat unique is uh, so my dad's been here for a few days, so we've actually been talking about this stuff. So we're not really coming into it where we can start at the bottom and really work our way. We're kind of coming in from the middle. And so we, uh, we reach that kind of point where it's like, Hmm, okay. We both agree with those fundamental principles. I don't think I agree with how it's being put into practice. So I think we're almost at this like ideological stalemate. So well, I think, the, I, I think to be fair, the ideological stalemate, we're at, and I don't think you fully expressed it, is that I believe I believe that there's something going on under the surface with the leftist movement that's more than a um, an accident of all these cities having unrest, and Michael feels I'm being a little bit over-suspicious and paranoid that something whose time has come and it's just happening. But as you guys know, I don't believe in accidents. After reading all my mafia books and growing up in New Jersey and learning about the mob and corruption in New Jersey, I don't believe in accidents. Of course, they happen occasionally, but I just don't, I don't buy it. And of course, you know, Michael means the world to me and he's going to be taking over this world with the rest of you. So I just want him to be, be on your guard that, a lot of things look great. They look great, and they are great till they're not. So, what's the uh, underlying agenda on the right? And what, what now, do the Trump supporters want? So, well, that's a that's a great question. So, I think, to be fair, now it's gotten so polarized that the right is out of control, also, and um, they moved to a too conservative, staunch position. Part of that is because they feel they have to sow 
vociferously counter the left because the undercurrent on the right is that the left is so heavily moving left that now we have no choice but to move more right to counter them. Or it could have also been the other way around. I guess it could have been. In other words, the left's opinion would be the exact opposite of that. No, no, we're moving to the left because of you. And the right's opinion would be that same thing in reverse as well. But it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, that where is the room for somebody who's in the middle and a moderate thinker? I mean, it's, I really resent the fact that in November, as you can see, my hypothesis is that Biden is a figurehead, so I'll be voting for somebody much further left than he presents himself. Or conversely, I can vote for Trump. And I find and it I, unbelievable that th these are the two choices, these two outrageously disparate choices are the only main choices available to me. And I'll just remind everyone that the state he lives in more or less decides the election in Florida. Uh, do we want to use that to uh, segue into Electoral College we, a little bit? We can we... use anything we <laughs> want, Nick. This is your time. All right. But I think that with the Electoral College, we, I think we came to a very good conclusion on that last night. We, we did. So if you want to recap that to your friends, I mean, Michael and I saw the whole thing in 15 minutes last <laughs> night. Did we not? I, I would say it's a good compromise. I would probably still favor a popular vote. Well, explain, okay, so folks. the issue with the Electoral College, other than the fact that it is basically trash, is that it essentially allows... What, what, that is an outrageous... <laughs> now, now is, there is an it even, really, I mean, there is an even-handed presentation. The issue of look, the fact that it's trash... Uh, I'm entitled to my opinion. I think a system I, I that twice that. in the last five elections or something has voted. Oh, you mean the Electoral College the way it is now? Yes, the way it is now. Sorry. Not, is, not the way it could be. Yes, is trash. It tells all the Republicans in California and all the Democrats in Texas mm -hmm. to go fuck themselves and leaves the elections up to Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, I honestly forgot exactly where mm -hmm. I was going with that. Pennsylvania. But. Well, the, the anyway, the proposal would be that this is very important. Thought. <laughs> uh, the the proposal would be wait, wait, you got to back go up. Go ahead. You, you have to put some level setting. I have to look and, and help make sure the folks you know most of them know, but for those okay. that don't know, for perhaps you want to just clarify what is the purpose of the electoral college? Because I I know there's many people out okay. there saying. It's terrible. Well, okay. what's the, well, A, the, what's the purpose of it? And why do you think the founding fathers installed okay. it well, in the first place? I, I think that is honestly a good debate because, and anyway, so go ahead. what the Electoral College is said to do today is redistribute voting. It was, it was always said to do oh, this. Okay, I'm not sure it's I agree a, with that. It's a, no, that's a very important point that the, I, the, okay. the go ahead. I'm sorry for interrupting. I'll give it back to you in one second, but I just want to clarify something you said because you, you did say something that was not factual. Okay. I And I'm pretty sure my perspective is correct okay, here. Go ahead. It was always intended to put in place to weight voting so that the 
coasts or the major cities would not carry a disproportionate amount of votes. And that ironically was even, even um, a reasonable associate assumption in colonial times, and that's why they installed it there. I will just say I am skeptical, as you are of lots of things, of that interpretation being the reason. So let me just active. back up for a second okay. so, that, so that the folks who don't know how it works, Mike okay. and I talk about this all the time. We talk about the electoral you, you would college think, all the time? Well, we've right, talked about ahead. this concept. Go ahead. Of, we've talked about the concept of waiting. Have we not in the I, times? I don't think so. Okay. Well, in my dream, we talked about it. In your so, dreams? Okay. Well, it's a waiting system. You know, everybody makes it very complicated, but the idea is that if you didn't put waiting on all the states and you just let the popular vote falls at May, the power of the um, depths and the concentrations of the highly popular states would be such that they would sweep away the election. So what the idea is, is that you assign electoral votes for every state and they do a weighting technique where actually the more popular states are weighted a little less than you might expect based on their raw population. And this, the colonists, as well as the current believers in it, feel that this gives um, less dense states a chance to have a voice. Now, Michael brought up a concern with this last night, which we solved, so I'll turn it back okay. to him. So the, the proposal is that you would take... Well, explain the problem of that. First, you have to clarify what the problem the is. The problem of it is that someone who does not get the most votes for president of the United States can, has, and is currently the president of the United States. So the question, that raises a question. Maybe there's something not perfect about this waiting, because right now... The monkey wrench is, and it is simplistic. Yeah, you're over-explaining. For that. most states, it's winner take all, where if there was even just a one or two percent. Dad, um, this is what my generation would call mansplaining. That's just to point out to you. Well, it ties back to the solution. Right, go ahead. I was well, going to say, it ties back all to the right. solution that we created. Um, so all, our solution was instead, I think there are some states that do proportionately Break down those electoral votes. Maine, maybe based right. on a Maine's kind of weird. Right. It's taking us back ten the, minutes to say something that right. should take twenty seconds. Let me seconds. just finish it. It's like it's very, very important. Um, but most states do winner take all. So Michael and I solved this very cleanly last night by saying we should just you would stick with the stick with the uh, weightings, but then apply a percentage split based on the popular vote, and then everybody should be happy. So that's a very important problem in this country we solved. And so we I will just, on. just for clarity, a if a state has 10 electoral points or votes and the Democrat gets 60% of the vote and the Republican gets 40% of the vote, the Democrat would get six electoral votes, the Republican would get four electoral votes. And I actually did this calculation uh, with the Clinton-Trump election and found that Hillary Clinton would have won the presidency by a narrow margin. Wow. So Good one, Nick. 
I think, and this, I just thought of this, it is, to me, hilarious that the one time conservatives are in favor of any sort of redistribution, it's for elections. And what do you know, it tends to favor them. How ironic is that? So I guess your point is, you know, my brilliant son tends to skip ahead at points, so it's hard to follow his thought process. Are, are you saying that the Midwest states that are upweighted tend to be more Republican? Well, it's so, not just the Midwest. It's, it, it is. Are you saying that the states that are upweighted tend to be Republicans, so it ironically yes. favors them? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Well, why didn't you say it? I don't know why I didn't think to say it. Really should have. So, you know, this is supposed to be the anti-redistribution <laughs> party. All of a sudden, redistribution is great. And I, I actually think there's a, a number of um, uh, hypocrisies among the conservative party, such as this is supposed to be the party of, um, of liberty and free choice, except when it comes to your body. You can't have an abortion or you can't smoke marijuana. That's obviously off limits. Um, I know there's another one that I can't remember at this point. Another, actually, another one. This is supposed to be the party of Christian values. Judeo-Christian values. Christ was a hippie radical socialist and just for the record, was not white. So he was born in Israel. <laughs> He's Middle Eastern. How could he be white? You say he was black? Saying he was probably some sort of a brown. So and I'm sure there's almost certainly hypocrisy. I don't know that Christ was a socialist. I, mean, I would have bet that he would have. I'll give you an example okay. why I think he was. Feed the poor, take the stranger into your home. Uh, oh, he I would mean, have been pro-welfare state. Maybe not socialist. We'll go pro-welfare state. Well, he certainly was big on the safety net. I mean, you got to give him that. Very, yeah. very good with the safety net. Believe in the safety net. We all believe in that. So we're now, uh, we, we've made it to the point of Republican Jesus. The, the idea that the, the hypocrisy and that modern day conservatives who are so religious, uh, Christ would have been so anti-Republican. Well, I mean, the Bible... I think you're complaining a few things. I mean, doesn't the Bible go against abortion? Yeah, doesn't I'm not, the Bible espouse the teachings of Christ? I, I'm not. Well, I'm yeah, not. I'm not convinced Christ would have been a supporter of abortion. You've got to be right, careful about things okay. like that. That's fair. But I think if you took all of the things he would agree with with liberals and all the things he would agree with with Republicans, he would be a lot more liberal. Maybe the idea of abortion. Is okay, but strong you, enough you just said something him. concerning because one of the big drivers of Republicans is the religious right, and they're very strong, um, strong believers of the Bible. 
And the Bible is supposedly, my understanding is, espouses his teachings. Okay. Well, I think they maybe take it a little too literally sometimes. Well, I don't, I don't <laughs> doubt that in the least. I mean, I mean, now you're, you're actually disagreeing with yourself. How am I disagreeing with myself? You're saying they too literally follow Christ's teachings, but a minute ago you were suggesting they did not follow Christ's teachings. They, li they follow it literally when it comes to abortion. Otherwise, that's yeah. it's up to interpretation. I don't think they would agree with that. I I'm sure they wouldn't. But. Most, most of the religious right are very dogmatic about their, their compliance with the New Testament. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm agreeing with that. Now, if you're going to say, do I think they take it too literally? Of course I do, but they wouldn't agree with that. Okay. They would tell you, and I've heard them say it on TV, and we are devout believers the word of Jesus Christ. They think that's the, uh, you know, they think it's, it's gospel. That's the word gospel. So I'm a little, I'm a little confused what you're saying there. I mean, if you want to say that maybe they're, they're too little literal for reasonability, I'm not going to disagree with that, but they think they're following the words of Christ. Okay. Well, well we didn't get too far in that one. Right? I think, what I wanted to say, but maybe didn't say correctly, is they have not extrapolated many of Jesus's beliefs to what he would say about things today, such as immigration, such as redistribution of wealth, such as feeding the poor. This is so. This is classic. With religion, okay, yeah. Most aspects and sects of religion are not interested in reinterpreting mm -hmm. relative to a modern perspective. You could say the same thing for Judaism. You could say the same thing for Islam. Okay, so I every religion has that issue. I will I will go back and adjust what I said before. There are certainly things that modern day conservative Christians politically keep with um, with respect to Jesus and the Bible, but there are also many things that they don't. So if you want to say that if they were being fair and looking at our current environment, what would Jesus say today? I would agree with Michael, but unfortunately, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to say, that's not how we do it. Mm. And conservative Jews are going to say the same thing about the Torah. The conservative Islamists are going to say the same thing about the Quran. Because you know how conservative religious people are. They look at the straight interpretation of the book. Yeah, well, um, with that, I actually, I wanted to highlight um, one of my dad's hidden skills and hobbies. Um, he, he probably knows what I'm talking about, I think. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think I do, but All I'm right, not a mind say it? I think maybe you're talking about karaoke? Yes, I'm talking about karaoke. Okay. Um, I thought the audience might be interested in hearing about your karaoke. Oh, that's, that's part of my thing in South Florida, you know. It's, it's pretty cool. You know, you have a lot of these bar restaurants 
They like to have fun in Florida. They do know how to have a good time. So karaoke is very big. So, uh, you know, when Michael was a little boy, this all started with Johnny Cash in the car. And I got hooked on Johnny Cash. Just something about, you know, his melodies and the words, the lyrics. And then Michael got into it in his own wacky way. And then when I first started doing karaoke, the only thing I was comfortable doing was Johnny Cash. Because we'd sing in the car all the time. And so, it, and then I got to the point where I said to myself, I challenge you to do something other than Johnny Cash. I said, no, I can't do it. It's impossible. But I started branching out. So uh, I got into different things. And I, I get such a kick out of it. And the funny thing was, and I told Michael this, when I was a kid, I was a very average if not below average singer and I don't know how I got better at singing but uh, somehow over the years maybe from the Johnny Cash and my voice getting lower it happened yeah, well uh, my friends who are listening um, at least the uh, Vermonters know I'm also a uh, karaoke lover so ne next time you're up here in Burlington uh, hopefully COVID won't be a thing and hopefully we'll be able to uh, go down to JP's pub and do some karaoke together. I didn't know you were a karaoke lover. You never told you, me that. I'm not as enthusiastic as you. But I think that's great. You know, there's, there's a bar in bar here that does J, JP's. Shout out to JP's. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that their big draw is karaoke. Somehow I think, I, I don't know another place in Burlington that does karaoke. Yeah, that would have been so great opportunity. Hopefully COVID won't be a thing and uh, we'll be able to do some karaoke next time you're here. Okay. All right, should we wrap this up? Let's wrap it up. Anything else you want to say to the, to the audience? Well, he, he did great. Isn't he fantastic? I mean, if I think about how I would have done at 26 doing the same thing, first of all, the idea that I would have even had a podcast with my dad is both hilarious and preposterous at the same time. But if we did, I never could have carried it the way he did. All right. Well, th thanks for doing the podcast, Dad. Okay. And this has been episode four of Steinfeld Talks. Goodbye, everyone.